We're in the book of Colossians. If you're first plugging in with us and turn to the book of Colossians to chapter 4. And we'll be picking back up in chapter or verse 2 of chapter 4. And you can follow along. I know it's just a few verses, but woo, there's so much in these verses. And for those of you taking notes, uh, I hope your pencils are sharp and ready to go. Because uh, I'm going to lay out a bunch of stuff here for you all. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for this morning and as we open up your word. Holy Spirit, uh, have your way. Use your word to speak to our hearts. And uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, as your children, as believers in you, Jesus Christ, that uh, followers of you, that you would teach us and mold us and shape us and refine us to the things we need to hear and understand and know of you and our walk with you. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you personally, I pray your word, your Holy Spirit will speak to their hearts and they will surrender their lives to you. They will choose to believe in you and what you've done for them on that cross at Calvary, dying for their sins and giving them a new life. And we pray that they will surrender their life today and choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you remember, Paul the Apostle is in a Roman prison writing a letter to people in a church in Colossae he had never met. How and why would a man who's in prison waiting for the death sentence by Caesar or the fact he'll get freed from prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ, why would he write a letter to a, a place in Colossae is over a thousand miles away? And in and, and these times, there was no easy way of getting that letter, that a scroll, that what we refer to as the book of, of Colossae, to these believers. But here he is in a Roman prison, writing to the believers he'd never met, but he understood that they were the fruit of his ministry. He had started a church in Ephesus, and through that church in Ephesus, people got saved, and a man named by Epaphras, who got saved, goes and started a church and goes and spreads the gospel, the good news of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, in these parts of area called Colossae or Laodicea or Heropolis, and in this other part, and he sends, he goes out there, and he now, he understands that the people are being saved and churches are starting in these little, these cities around the area. Now, as we take a look at these, this, this, he, now Paul addressed, in, as we've, in the, throughout this letter, as we've come to an end of this letter, he, had, he gave us the foundational doctrine, the truths of God, in the first part of this letter. And then in Paul's style, not only does he give you the truth, then he teaches you the application, how to apply it to your life as a believer. And he did that, and we emphasized that last week, in regards to family. And then we saw now, now the power of prayer and the sharing of the gospel as a witness to the fallen world, those who do not know the truth, how that is so important at the end of his letter, and that's what we will address today. Now, last time we were here in chapter 3, Paul addressed the, the need for the fullness of the Spirit of God in your life, and then the fullness of the Word of God to be active in knowing it and active in your life and in your home specifically. Now, your home may be defined as you and your little self in your little room. That might be home for you. But the home could be, it might be, you might be married, or you might have children, or you have grandparents nearby, or what it may be. Whatever your home and influence, and if you remember last week, it also involved your work profession and where you worked as a, an employee, but also if you're an employer or an owner of a business, how you're to treat your employees. And that was very lined out in a very practical way last week in chapter 3. And if the family members, 
Whatever those people that are family members around you or coworkers that fall around you, it's just so important that we are controlled by the Spirit of God and living the Word of God. And they will be, and if when we do that, when we're living by the Word of God and controlled by the Spirit of God, then there are some results that will happen in your family. First, there will be a joyful family. There will be joy within the household. We saw, too, that there will be thankfulness in the household. You'll be thankful for what God is doing in and through your family. And then you will have a submissive, uh, uh, submissiveness within. You're submitting. You're not trying to lord over or dominate in the house. Everyone's willing to be submissive to one another, to help and, and love one another in that family. And so, and when that all happens... When you're living by the word of God, you're being controlled by the, uh, by the spirit of God, then there is tremendous joy, thankfulness, and submissive, and there's very little troubles within a family. The problem that we see in families today is there's so much trouble and chaos and division in the family because someone in the family or all the entire family is in chaos because they're not willing to know the word of God and to follow the word of God and trust in the power of God to help them do it. And they wonder why they have chaos in the house. So you want to heal your home? Do you want to have peace in your home? Do you want joy and thankfulness and submission where people are willing to just be in unity in the family? Then you must know the word of God and you must apply it to your life. And you need to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside you as a believer to do that. Amen? Are you with me? I'll take an amen. All right. Today, I'm just getting wound up. You know, I already, already taught once. So you guys are trying to warm up and wake up here, but I'm already awake. Chapter 4 here today, the rest of it, we see that the power of speech is a gift of God. The ability to speak and the ability to what you do speak is, is critical in, in your life. And that power of speech from God, it must be used according to God's ordained way. That is what God gave us speech for. You can't just say whatever you want to say. We saw last week, and we studied in Corinthians and other places, that, um, that what comes out of your mouth is from the heart. And if your heart is not right, it's amazing the filth that will come out of your mouth. The wickedness and the, the resentfulness and all the unforgiveness and all these things come out of the mouth of a person's heart that has not been changed. And, but God says, I can change that. But it, So he wants us to have a mouth, that speech that is going to be honoring to him. Now, that speech could be outward or you could actually hear it, but it also could be speech that you're actually saying within your head. So you can be talking to yourself, but no one hears you. But God hears you. You have to remember that. God can hear all things, see all things. He's all powerful. He's everywhere. He, he's, just because you have it in your head, no one else says. He hears you, and he wants you to have that right thinking. And he also, when it comes out of your mouth, he wants it to be right and, and according to what's honoring and pleasing to him. And James chapter 3, the book of James, speaks of the power of the tongue, the power to direct situations in front of you, has the power to destroy others and situations. And that tongue of yours has the power to actually also to delight or to bring a, a encouragement and love to others. So what comes off that tongue, that little tiny tongue, has a lot of power. And you have to make sure that tongue of yours is tamed, God says. Now, how does that happen? Only by the power of God. Only by having a submission to a life to God and, again, a, a desire to follow God. 
And today we're going to see the important ministries of speech and the witnessing or speaking to others about God's truth in the form of what I refer to as a title here, prayer and sharing. So let's take the very first one here in verse 2 of chapter 4. And we see here in verses 2 through 4 here is how we speak to God. This is what it's all about. So that's the context. How you speak to God. He says, continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So there's a lot right here. I could talk just on this alone and first service recognize that. And but, but this is a very powerful thing for you. How do we speak to God? Well, he said, Paul says here in the verse 2, we say, we're going to see four elements of prayer and prayer alone for those who are taking notes. He says the first one here says, that, and, and for you and I to understand, is that prayer and worship, what we just lifted our voices up in worship and song. We lift up our voices in prayer and worship and just talking to him. And maybe not to music. But we, that is probably the most important and most excellent way to use the gift of speech that God has given you. Did you know that? That God has given you this voice and ability to speak in your mind or outwardly to praise him and to glorify him and to recognize who he is. That is the most important thing you can do with your speech each and every day. So prayer and worship is the most excellent way. But Paul also describes some characteristics here in our verses today, what it means or how it is to, for us to pray to God. First is, we are to, our prayer must be faithful. Right there, the words he uses, continue earnestly in prayer. We must be prayer, a faithful prayer warriors and lifting our requests and praying for others or praying for situations, going to God in all things. Regardless of how big or small it is, you go to God and you continue. The, the original Greek here of continue means it's a continuous flow. It's like a constant, even a drip, 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 or, or a flowing of constant talking to God about the situation at hand. But not only do it continuously, that Paul wants them to, to the, the fact that they wants the Colossian church there to pray and continually pray and earnestly pray. We see that back in, in the beginning of the letter. He, he talked about how important prayer was. If you remember in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. But he says that their life, their ministry, would continue to prosper through this, this continuous earnest, uh, earnest in prayer to make sure they communicate and understand what God is, has in mind with, with what's on their hearts. This, this sort of earnest prayer is so important that it is a steadfastness that is applied in your life. You're consistent. You're just, I am just diligent in making sure I'm praying for this person or for this situation. And I won't stop until I hear from God or I see the results of God answering that prayer. Oh, how easy it is for Christianese to say, oh, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. And then you walk away. Oh, I don't know, I don't know how they're going to get out of that situation. <laughs> they're really in trouble. They're not, they're, I, this is going to be interesting. you know. And that was the last time you thought of that person, even though you told them you were going to pray for them in that situation at hand. But may that be, not be us. 
May our first, our, our, that first element of prayer is that we continuously, earnestly be in prayer for that person or for that situation that God has put on your heart or has asked you to pray for them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, we're to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? You're just constantly muttering to yourself? No, it means to pray without ceasing means it's like breathing. You're constantly, it's just everything you're doing as you're going through the day, you're just talking about God the whole situation. Oh, well, Lord, I'm going to get in the car here and I'm going to go to church and I, I pray the roads are free and, 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 and the roads are clear so I can get there safely. And oh, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are also going to be there because I really want to see them at church. And I pray for that they'll be able to get shoveled out and get there and, and make sure they're on time, Lord, so I can have a great time in fellowship. And I, Oh, that reminds me, Lord, I, I remember Tim. I, I'm going to lift up Tim to you because he asked me to pray for him last year. And Lord, I forgot to pray for him all week long, but I'm going to pray for him now before I get there. So when he asked me, have you been praying for me? I said, I've been praying for him. You know, if these kinds of things happen in your head. It happens in mine. Those little conversations happen all the time. Is it called praying without ceasing? God hears those, and he honors those, and it pleases him as you come to him about all things. And so we need to have this steadfast prayer life that's devoted, and we don't quit. The second thing he noticed here in verse 2 is that we're being vigilant. This is the second characteristic of prayer is to be vigilant. We must be alert. We must be awake as we, we pray. In the Bible, we see two words together, watch and pray, watch and pray. As you watch the situation at work, you, are you praying for that situation? Are you watching as things are unfolding and some turmoil in your house? Are you watching and praying for the situation in your household? If you saw something happen to your neighbor next door and they've had a fire, are you watching and praying? Are you, are, is that who you are as a Christian? Just constantly, just, God, are you, what are you doing in that situation? And God, show me what you're doing. What can I, how can I be part of the solution here of this? How can I lift them up? How can I encourage them? How can I go help them? How can I give something to them that is going to help them through that situation? You're watching what God is doing around your life, and you're talking, we call prayer, you're talking to God about them in that situation. How many times have you received a call from home? Many of you have home is somewhere across the country. And they call and they're crying out. And they're saying this is terrible, this has happened and stuff. And you're helplessly here. You can do nothing for that child. You can do nothing for that mom or dad or mom or grandma or whatever. But you have the power of prayer. You have a direct link and relationship with God Almighty who sees and hears and knows all things. And he can, and you can intercede for the person across the country in your family. Did you know as a believer you had that power? Trust me. Most Christians, I'm one of them, do not understand the power of prayer as much as I wish I knew. I wish I spent more time praying than I do. And God reminds me and brings me back many times over. You didn't pray for this. You need to continue to pray for this. And you wonder why you're feeling uneasy and not, don't have a peace about the situation. You haven't been praying, Corey. You haven't been talking to me about these things. So that I can speak into your life and speak what is going on in that situation and give you a wisdom and understanding uh, for that situation. And how God wants us 
to continue. Not only be faithful in our prayers, but we need to be watchful in our prayers. And then as we watch, as we're faithfully doing it and we're watchfully, notice the third element here. He says he prays with thanksgiving. He has, is there's a thankfulness in our prayer life. We are to be vigilant, yes, in prayer. Yes, we're to be constantly doing that, but always praying with thanksgiving for the great things God has done. You're just constantly watching and you're just praising God. God, thank you for answering that prayer. God, thank you for doing that and, and working in that person's life. I, I heard a good report and we've been praying for that person. Yes, that person's sick. Now that the person's no longer sick, praise God. Thank you for that good report. You're praising God for what he has done or hindered or keeping from disaster from happening. I don't know about you, but when I travel, I'm calling the first thing I get in the car is like, God, please keep the deer away from me. Please. And I constantly are playing, no, Lord, please keep the deer away. Have Bambi somewhere else because I don't need him in my front of my car. And then when I get through, I'm like, okay, I got through the, that little sign, the deer coming across the road. I got through that sign, that section. I'm like, Lord, thank you. I got through that section, but keep me protected until I get there. Why? Because I do not want a deer hitting my car. Do you know they can get a deer in your garden and kill you? Yeah, it can happen. I've seen it. As an EMT, I've, I've watched it. I've had to go to a calls on those kinds of things. And it's terrible to see. We had a brother here. <laughs> Two brothers. I'm going to sidetrack here. I know that's what we're going to take some time. But a good dear, your brother, it's, the military's taking them on now. They're down in other, different places. He got a brand new car, right? And he would just, oh, beautiful truck, just beautiful, right? I, I know he's going to listen to this. He's going to call me later. But, um, but he's like, you like, my, you like my truck, Pastor? I said, I love it. I said, you better watch out. You know deers love tr beautiful trucks like that, you know. Oh, don't talk like that. Don't talk like that. I said, just pray that's pray for it. You know, within, I don't know, it was a very short period of time. Him and his best bud, man, they were, they were, they were romance. And, and they were going to, to somewhere. And all of a sudden, that deer came right out of nowhere. And they hit the front. And he just rolled. That deer just rolled down the side of that truck. He came, boy, he came to the house. Oh, we had, I had to pray for him so he didn't lose, lose it because his brand new truck. But how important it is to pray. I wasn't praying the deer would hit his truck, but now I'm praying for my brother because he really did have his deer hit his truck. And he's, you know, how quickly those things go, don't they? They just go. Anyway, I'll have to go back to the. Be thankful. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. How many times do we find ourselves anxious of a situation? We're just absolutely stressed out because you have no control. The scripture says for us to go immediately to prayer and let God calm your feelings, your emotions, calm you down so that he can show you I, if you let me, I can be in control of this. I can help you through this valley, this dark valley. And how important it is that we go to him immediately. Make the connection. Notice here, we're interceding, we're lifting, we're talking to God about someone else, and then we're watching, we're watchful people in prayer, watching to see how God's going to answer that prayer. And then we're thankful when we see those answers um, uh, and those are prayers answered, and we're just so thankful for what God is doing in and through that person we were praying for. And finally, we see in verse 3, Paul says that his, his prayer ought to be purposeful or meaningful. He says, 
Meanwhile, praying for us, also for us that God would open to us a door for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ. For which I am also in chains. That I make it manifest as I ought to speak. So here, the final thing of prayer here, the fourth thing, is that your prayer would be uh, purposeful. So many times we pray in general, in, and they're very vague on the things we talk to God about. God wants you to talk about, he knows all things. He wants you to pour out your heart in the specifics and ask for prayer for, for specifics. Be meaningful. Paul is saying here, Paul wasn't asking, you know, I'm in the prison. Can you get me out of here? Can you, can, you, can you get me out of here and get me far from here? Because this is no Gouda. I don't like it here. I, I feel miserable. I'm dirty. I'm naked. I, I'm really struggling here. I want to get out of here, God. But if you noticed in Paul's prayer and his other prison prayers that we see in the scripture, he never asks for something for himself personally. You know why? Because he knows his God, and God says in the word that God will faithfully provide his basic needs. What he was praying for is, God, how can I continue my mission? How can I continue to share the gospel to this fallen world? I'm in prison. I'm chained with some of the biggest dudes in Roman prison here. And I'm constantly chained to these guys. And I get to continue to worship them or minister to them, I should say. Minister to them and share the gospel for every time, every hour the new guard comes and chains up to me. I get to share the gospel with them. And they, we know in the scriptures they were getting saved. These soldiers, these big dudes, well-trained dudes were getting saved. And their whole households were getting saved because they were going back in their houses and telling their families their wives or kids about, the, the, about Jesus can save them. And, and there was just some radical things going on. And Paul's sitting here going, I just want to be purposeful. Lord, can you, when he sends this letter, can you not only pray for all the things you're talking about, but can you pray for us and how we can get the word out? How we can continue to share the gospel with those around here in the condition, in the place I'm, I'm at? He didn't ask to get out. He didn't ask for personal material stuff to be given to him. God, he knew God was going to provide that. His focus was on his mission. I want to continue to share the gospel. And not just share, but notice he says he wants to, to, to be able to manifest it or to make it clear or clear evidence of what he's trying to get across. He says, I want to just not only share the gospel, I want everyone who's hearing to hear it clearly and so vividly that they will understand it and believe it. That was his prayer. That's, what his, that's why he wanted the power of God in him, living inside him to do that kind of work. Why, why would he ask for that? Because he understood Satan does not want a non-believer to understand the simplicity of believing in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for his, his or her sins. The Satan and his demonic forces will do whatever they can to keep you from coming to God. Let's look at his believers. If I ask you, to, hey, let's just read the word. You'll struggle with that. It will be hard for you because I don't know about it. I'm not sure I'm a good reader. And you'll come up with some, some excuses. But you'll come on a Sunday and you'll listen to it because that's easier. But if I ask you to go and sit in your closet and just sit in your room and pray to God, look how difficult that is. 
If I ask you, we're all going to sit here and just pray, how difficult and uncomfortable that is. Why? Because Satan will come in and immediately give distractions. Immediately say, oh, you can't do it. Immediately, God, are you kidding me? You're going to talk to God after what you just thought of out in the car? What you did last night? Satan was trying to keep you even from coming here. You have no problems as a couple. All week long, you're just, oh, I love my wife. I love my husband. Everything's fine. You get in a car on a Sunday morning before you wake up, and you have the first fight you'll ever have. Oh, we're not going to church now. How can we go to church and praise God when we're just made angry at each other? See, this is how Satan works, my brothers and sisters. Don't be fooled by the deceiving tactics of the Satan. You still show up regardless of how you feel. You talk to God regardless of how you feel. You read the word of God regardless of how you feel. You spend time in fellowship regardless of how you feel. Because when you show up regardless of how you feel, God shows up and you are always blessed. You will hear from him. He will reveal himself to you. And that's why it's so important that we continue to pray. Why? Prayer is not telling God what to do and what to give. Prayer is asking God for that which he wants to do and what he wants to give. According to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, we want his will. We want to trust him in what he has. Can you imagine if you go to God and say, God, I'm asking for this, and he's looking down at you going, why are you asking for such little thing when I was about to give you a bigger thing? Why would I don't want to, to limit God in my life? He's a big God. <laughs> he, he has all the resources of the universe at his fingertips, and he can do whatever he wants to do with his son. I've been adopted into his family. I'm a family of God. He has a great inheritance for me. I know that because the scripture tells me so. But why would I limit him in my prayers of what he needs to do and what he needs to give when he says, when we just need to come to him and say, God, what do you want to do in this situation? What do you want to give in this situation? What do you want to do in this situation? I just want your will. I want it clear. And I just want to be in line with your will because I want the blessing and, the, and please you in everything I say and do. Do you see the difference, my brothers and sisters? Legalism and Gnosticism, men's philosophies tell you to go out and get, 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 do, do, do. And God says it's completely opposite of that. And we just humbly come to him and say, God, what do you want to do in my life? What did you create me to do? What gifts or abilities and skills did you give me that you want me to do for you to please you and bring glory and honor to you? I will do whatever it is. And I assure you, my brothers and sisters, when you're in the will of God, doing what he's created you to do in your mother's womb, even before your mother's womb, he already knew you and what he was going to create you for. Now, that's hard for some of you to get that around your head but I'm telling you just keep showing up and read the word of God and you will see how God will reveal he created you for a very specific purpose for him that will bring tremendous glory and honor and if you would accept his son for your payment of your sin you will be set free and have eternal life and you will experience glory for eternity that's a beautiful thing that God has given to a wretched man like me, a sinful man like me. And only by his grace was he willing 
to come to this earth to do that for me. And I believe. Do you believe? I hope you believe today. Because then you'll have the ability to communicate with the God of the universe. The God that created you and knitted you in the womb of your mother. That is amazing grace. But as you see this, he continues here. And not only do we need to remember that we're not looking to get, we're looking to just receive. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want? How do you want to have this all work out? And now we see that at the end here in verse 4, Paul is talking about sharing the word. We've been talking about prayer, but now we're talking about sharing. Sharing the gospel. Sharing in the ministry with other people. And he's going to mention 10 dudes, 10 guys here that was part of his ministry and with him that God used. And we're going to talk about this remaining of this time. I hope in the next two hours. But we're going to sit here and we'll continue to go here. As we look at this, we have to understand that sharing the word as we ought to speak in a clear and evident way is what is we need to ask for because we want to have the power of prayer bringing forth the, the speaking of the, of the gospel to those around us who are, who are lost, who are blinded. Did you know that? It was a little shocking to me how I could sit here and, and not hear the gospel. My whole life through high school, and I, I'm sitting here, how do I not now find out at the end of my, in my 20s getting saved? Why didn't I hear that truth early on? And then immediately, once I got saved, God brought back to memory that an, my earth science teacher, my buddy's father, who on the track and field team, had me come to his house, and I remembered in his twinkle of an eye that he shared the gospel with me in his house when I was in 12th grade. So God was always trying to get me to know and understand who Jesus is. Even in my whole life, I was just blinded. That's how we are. When we're unsafe, we're blinded to the truth. And we have to pray before you share the gospel. It's important that we pray and say, God, clear the eyes. Take away the darkness of the eyes that's covering this person I'm about to share the good news with because they, I want them to hear clearly what you, your love for them that you want to save them and bring them, adopt them into the, your family. And you must pray the power of prayer to help lead your way and to pave a way for you to be able to share that gospel. So we've talked about how we speak to God. Now in verses 5 and 6, we're going to see Paul now talks about how do we speak to man. In verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom toward those who are outside, or those who are outside of the faith. Those who have not given their life and turned their life over to Christ. Those who are in darkness. They have no life here. He's referring to them who, who need to understand and to hear this gospel. This, the Christian life isn't only lived in a prayer closet. You don't just you and your, your prayer and just you and your room and just pray. But God is also um, interested in how you're praying for others or in the public view or in the public street or in church or other places. He's interested in you and talking to him in that environment as well here. 
And how do you speak to men? He says here, to walk in wisdom. You need God to give you clarity of how to communicate those who are not saved. And to redeeming the time. Looking for those opportune times that God arranges. You're sitting there and you're having a good time. You might be having your lunch. And all of a sudden, God brings a line, a guy, to sit down next to you for lunch and you haven't met him. Or maybe you do know him. And you're sitting, or her, and you're sitting there having lunch and you're talking, you're having a little small talk and you're having a good time, all of the weather, and you get past the little peripherals things, the, the weather and, oh, isn't it nice, and, oh, it's going to snow again, and we talk about weather for the next 10 minutes. But at some point, God stirs your heart up and says, this person's not a believer. This person doesn't know Jesus. This person is in darkness. I want to share the good news with them while we're having lunch. And he stirs you up, and then the, Satan comes at you, don't. Don't you be saying anything? Are you, what are going to people think around you in the lunchroom? And what are they going to say if, they, if he doesn't respond? Well, I mean, all these kind of crazy things get in your head. All we need to do is when God bubbles that up in us and stirs us up and, re, and gives us an opportune time, you share the gospel regardless of how you're feeling. Because God has brought you an opportune time and you need to redeem that time. You must take advantage of that opportunity to share the good news with that person. You see what it changed your life. Why would you be so selfish not to share that with someone else who needs, who, I mean, so many times we sit down with people or hanging around people, and what do they talk about? Oh, you haven't heard about my son who's on drugs today. You know, this is really bad. It's really tearing the family apart. Oh, we got an alcohol problem. My husband, you have no idea what's causing the problem with alcohol. You don't understand. My son is in pornography, and he's just ravaging. He doesn't care. He doesn't listen. He's, all, he's just ravaging his mind. He doesn't care. He's disobedient and all that. And you hear these stories. Do you realize you have the answer to all those problems? Do you know that? Do you really know a relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship with not, not religion, not personal rel relationship with a religion, but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, can change everything for you? Change everything for that person? You have the answer to share the good news. Now, it's not your job. You can't save anybody. Only God can save them. Oh, you're just as a vessel. You're just, he's just using your speech, the gift he's given you. To clearly, as Paul said, I just want to manifest clearly the good news. But it's up to them if they receive and believe. That's between them and God. You're just a vessel being used by God. That's how it works. And so he's sitting here as we walk in wisdom toward those outside of the faith and redeeming the time. Don't list out these opportunities. Walk means in the original Greek is to your behavior, how you walk, your behavior, your attitude, what, how, where you go. Those things are very, very important. Why is it that we should walk our behavior, attitudes, and where we go? Why should that be in wisdom? Because this is what's going to happen to you as a, as a believer. If you don't walk in wisdom and you walk foolishly, if you walk like you're a Christian today and you're praising God, you're saved, you got fire insurance, you're going to heaven, praise the Lord. But then you go back to the life that you used to live in carnality, we call it, or in worldliness and fleshliness, and you live by your flesh and you talk the same way, you walk the same way, you go into the same places that you just know now that you shouldn't be going as a Christian you're going to break your witness. 
You're going to jeopardize your witness in your walk, how you're saying. Because you're sitting now telling people you're a Christian. But then you go back to the job and you talk like you're not a Christian. You go and do things like everyone else who's a non-Christian. You're, you're, you're behaving. You're, the filth that's coming out of your mouth is just like a Christian. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. As you're a brand new believer, God's going to work in you and just sanctify and change you over time. And people who are watching your life should say, you're a Christian? No way. That's, that's impossible. I know what you do on Friday nights. and No, I know how you treat your, your, uh, your, your wife and your... No. As, as we... Our walk changes. We become more of a witness to those around and says, man, I can't believe you used to do, you used to be a drunkard and you're free from all that. I really want that. You used to have such an anger problem and now you're, it's almost nauseating how loving you are. And for those in darkness, they absolutely hate the light. They hate love. If anyone's in your life as a non-believer, and someone as a non-believer says, I absolutely, you, you, I can't handle your goodness and your, your love. I just, I, I can't handle being around you. you. Do you know why? Because you live in darkness. The Bible says darkness does not like light. So you will repel anyone who walks with Jesus, you will repel him. You will repel her because they remind you of the sinful state you live in. But don't repel them. Watch their lives. Watch, 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 watch their lives and learn. Why? Because Paul says, let your speech always be with grace. So if someone is a believer talking to a non-believer, they should be talking in grace, by grace, gentleness, a love, long-suffering, kindness. Those are the words that should be coming out of a believer's mouth. It should not sound like some prosecuting attorney or a judge coming against you as a non-believer. You as a believer are to be with love, with grace, as Paul says. It must be filtered and be always with grace, seasoned with salt. So he gives these characteristics of how we're going to speak to men who are non-believers. And why do we do that? Because our model, our example, the person who did it exactly the way we want to do it is Jesus himself. We see that in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, when we see witnesses who are watching Jesus' life as he is walking on this earth. He, they say, so all bore witness to him, Jesus, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. As a believer, we want to be like Jesus. So whatever comes out of our mouth to a non-believer should be gracious in our words toward them. Out of love, because we want them to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Ephesians 4.15 says, we must speak truth in love. But why did Paul say, yes, your words have to be in grace, but why did he say seasoned with salt? Why did he say that? Well, in those days, remember, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have freezers. They preserved their good prime rib with salt. 
They preserved their food with salt. They covered it because they had to do it. But not only did they preserve that, the food, but it was also used as a seasoner to bring the flavors out. I don't know about you. I love a good meat with a good seasoning of uh, salt and pepper on it to bring out the taste of my meat. But why did he use these words? Well, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for, is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So what should, how should you be talking to your husband? How should you be talking to your wife? How should you be talking to your children? How do you talk to your boss and your co-workers and your neighbors? They should be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Salt brings purity. It brings, it's, it's, it's good for the conversation that you're having with these people. It should be properly seasoned. And then he noticed there in the end of that verse, he says, that you know, now know how ought to answer each one. So here you are having a conversation with non-believers. You're showing grace. You're c communicating in grace. It's full of love. It's full of kindness, full of gentleness, and trying to help them to understand that who Jesus Christ is, not their faults, not their sins. That, that's not what you're doing. You're talking about the love of Jesus and trying to save them from their sins. And then you have that seasoned with salt. It's pure. It's, it's, it's right. It's complete. It's seasoned just properly. But then it also, he says, it has you all to answer each one. Because believe it or not, non-believers, people who don't know, believe in Jesus, will ask and pepper you with questions. Have you ever experienced that? There you are. You're with a bunch of friends and you're having coworkers or whoever the situation may be or family members around a holiday and you're trying to share the gospel and what Jesus is doing in your life. And these People who are not believers are peppering all kinds of questions with you. And they're just coming after you. And you're just boom, boom, boom. And you've got these shields going up. But Paul is saying, I pray that you ought how to speak to each one. That you don't get angry at them. You don't, you don't come against them. You don't battle against them. But that you would just share biblical truth in your responses. When someone comes against you in your faith of what you're trying to share the good news with them, just make sure your response is always with the word of God. Why? Because what you and I think, in our opinion, means nothing. God's word means everything. There's power in the word of God. So when someone comes against you and you respond with the power of the word of God... They cannot handle that. And you have your shield of faith in front of you. You have your sword, which is the Bible, to swing about in the situations at hand. But let us walk in wisdom, redeeming the time, the opportunities that God gives you to be able to share an opportunity to win a soul to Christ. Now, the the remaining of these verses here, seven on, is going to talk about these ten guys that God brought into Paul's life in the ministry to help him come alongside and, and to minister to him. Now, the first guy, the first dude here, don't, don't hold me to the, the, the pronunciation of this, this word. There's probably five, six different ways you can say it. You can pick and choose whatever you want, how you want to say it. But I call him Tychicus. 
I, that's how I pronounce it, Tychicus. You can say Tychicus. I don't care. T just hang with me. It's about the guy and his characteristics, not his name so much. He, what does Paul talk to him about? He brings to you the, this letter to the Colossian believers, right? He says, Tychicus, who is he sending this letter, this scroll, that what we call the book of Colossians, to these believers. And he says to them, Tychicus, he, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So Paul's sending two guys with this letter that he's writing to these believers in Colossae. And he says, Tychicus is a beloved brother. His bro this brother has been right by my side. He's through all the difficult situations that I have been facing. He has faced with me. He's been with me. He's my right-hand man, my wingman. He's right there with me. He's been putting up with everything that's been in happening in my life. He's been putting up with it as well. And he is, through every difficult situation, how encouraging it is to Paul and to any believer who has a guy, a brother, or a sister with a sister right next to him going through situations in their lives and they do not leave them. That is the most valuable thing as a believer is to have a believing brother along your side who's got your back and will not leave you. A, a, a beloved brother who's loving on you and encouraging you even when you screwed up. There, Come on, brother, come on. Get back over here. Let's go. That's not where we're going to go. No, no, that's not what we do. No, that's, not, that, that's okay. Come back. Let's go. Do you have a beloved brother near you? Can you have someone in your mind right now or a sister who you can call on? Paul did. He also had a faithful minister. His love revealed itself in action. Tychicus, in his action, his behavior, what he did for Paul was everything. It wasn't just words. Oh, I'll pray for you, Paul. No, Paul, I'm praying for you, but I am standing physically with you. I'm going to the prison with you. I'm going to be in the shipwreck when, I, when we were coming to Rome. We got shipwrecked and we had to paddle to the island. I was there beside you when you got bit by the serpent and you should have died, but God saved you. I was there when you got prisoned again and I was there again. I did not leave you even through all the difficult situations in your life. Tychicus was a faithful minister. Not only did he minister to Paul, but he actually ministered for Paul in the obligations that Paul had as an apostle. And he was there for him and with him by his side faithfully. A faithful servant. A faithful minister. And he also was a faithful or a fellow servant. He was a fellow servant, though he was not an apostle himself. It didn't matter. He said, he understood who Paul was and what God was doing in and through Paul's life. And he says, I'm going to come alongside you and I am going to help lift your hands when you can't lift your hands. I will go when you can't go. I will do what's difficult if you can't do it. Keep this all in mind. These two guys are asked by Paul to take a letter 
and travel a thousand miles to deliver it to a series of churches, starting with Ephesus, then moving down to Colossae, and then down to Laodicea and Heropolis, and ultimately to Philemon himself. And you're sitting there going, wow, that sounds like a great road trip, doesn't it? But would you, would you, if you were my brother who was right alongside me with all the difficulties of starting the ministry up and working in the ministry over these years, and you're there constantly over and over, the highs and the lows, and I said to you, will you go across country with a letter and deliver it to another church in, in California? Would you do that by walking and dry, riding on a donkey for all those miles? Or would you say, well, that sounds really nice if I can fit it in my schedule, and, and we'll see how much a, a, a ticket on the plane is, and make, do you, will you send me first class, and, and, and do I have a hotel to stay in, and, and it's it got to be a Marriott if, if I'm, I really am going to do that, you know, and, and you're going to pay for all my food, and you're going to pay for this, and you're going to pay for that, and you didn't do any of that. He said, the Lord has asked, you want to use me to, to do what you can't do, Paul, because you're chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison, and this is important to do God's work. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how convenient, inconvenient it is. I don't care if it doesn't fit my schedule or my wife's schedule or my kid's schedule or my, my Sunday afternoon uh, watching football schedule. I don't care what the schedule is. If that's what God is, wants done, I am willing to do it. That's Tychicus. That's who we need to pray for to have someone like that in our lives. How critical it is. Onesimus, he's going as well to deliver this letter. Now what's interesting about Onesimus is that he was a slave. Remember, he was a slave to a man named Philemon. He somehow got away from his master Philemon goes all the way from Colossae and heads and finds Paul in Rome in the prison. And Paul ministers and disciples him and he becomes, becomes a believer and becomes saved. He's now a child of God. He's a believer. He's a brother in Christ. And he's ministering to him. And Paul says to Onesimus, to the slave, you need to go back to your master. You've got to go back and you need to serve him. And I'm going to write a letter on your behalf. That, that, and he says that he and Philemon and those back there in Colossae are one. Yes, the slave is one with the master. They're not one higher than the other, one not one better than the other. In God's family, you are all equal, all one. There is no higher or lower hierarchy. I am not hierarchy to you. You're not hierarchy to me. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord with a different calling and a, and, and a purpose that God's called us to do. And we serve the same God. We're going to all be in the same heaven, all worshiping the same God. We're all going to be in, the, in eternity together. And so Onesimus is being sent off, and as a slave, he couldn't just go by himself. Tychicus is going to watch him and be with him because it is now dangerous. They're talking dangerous to go in those times. You think it's dangerous now to travel. Try in those days. You'd be robbed and stripped in a heartbeat if it can get you. But they were taking him back as a, a, to, to protect him as a slave because there are people out there in those days would find slaves to, to kill them because they were hired to go find them and kill them or bring them back to their masters to be killed. 
But here, Onesimus has been saved. He's now going back by faith and trusting that God is going to protect him as he goes back to his master and had all the right at that point in time to kill him. But he was going back to Philemon, who was a believer, who now has a changed heart, and now he, he had trust that God is going to protect him because he's going back to a good master. In verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. And if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my, fellow, my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So we see the next guy here, Aristarchus. He was, a Mace- he was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. This guy was probably one of the key closest brother to Paul than all of them. He was there in Thessalonica. We see that Paul, when he was traveling, he went to Ephesus, to, 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 to the Ephesian area. The Ephesian mob who hated him seized Paul, if you remember in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Boy, that was a bad situation for Paul. But Aristarchus was there through it all when the mob got a hold of Paul. He was also there with Paul when he was sailing to Rome under the Roman imprisonment. See that also in Acts 27 too. He was, he was swimming with the fishes with him too to get to the island. And he stayed with Paul even after that. And then we see that Paul calls him a fellow prisoner, meaning he was in prison with Paul there sitting in that dark dungeon in that confinement and watching and seeing all that take place. He did not leave Paul. He was there in the prison. It seems that Aristarchus has an interesting habit of being with Paul in hard times as a fellow worker. Are you willing to go through those kind of times with a brother? Some of you will go with a brother to war. But do you go willingly? Or do you go because you're told? We're talking at a deeper level here. This guy didn't have anyone telling him he had to go with Paul. He had every opportunity to, to bail on Paul because there was just some bad stuff following Paul. <laughs> there was just people hated this man because Paul was being effective for God. And so we see that we continue to see here. And we see another guy named Mark or referred to as also as John Mark. He was the, coven, uh, the, the um, cousin of Barnabas. You remember the story? Paul and Barnabas is going out on their first missionary journey. We see in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 15. And while they're going out and they're going about and they go up into this part of the country, there was disease and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and Paul catches a disease in his eye that causes all kinds of problems for him. So there was disease going on. People are trying to kill him. People are beating him. All kinds of bad things are going on, trying to share the gospel and start churches in this upper Asia part. But guess what happens? Here, him and Barnabas going two by two, going out. But Barnabas says, hey, can I bring my relative Mark with me, young Mark? Can I bring young Mark with me? 
And when Mark, young Mark, gets up there and he gets into the situation, what happens is Mark bails on them and says, I can't handle it, and he goes back to Jerusalem. He leaves them out on the mission field all on their own. That didn't settle well with Paul, abandoning his mission. Now we're going here a little bit later time. Here's Paul and Barnabas going back out on another missionary trip. And Barnabas has the nerve to say to Paul, I'm going to go get Mark. Young Mark again, he's going to come with us. And Paul said, absolutely not. We don't know what the words were exchanged, but the words were so exchanged between him, him and Barnabas, these tight, tight two, that it caused a split and they separated and they went two different ways to do missionary trips. And Mark went with Barnabas. And Tim, young Timothy went with Paul. A split within two, between two brothers. Whatever was said was obviously not good. But as we look at this scripture here, we can see the grace of God working in Paul's life because now Paul is not only speaking the fact that Mark is, young Mark is still in his life, but that Mark, young Mark is still ministering and bringing comfort to Paul's life and helping him in the ministry. We even know in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, that Paul gets to a point where not only was uh, young, uh, Mark helping him, but he was actually commending and recommending Mark in the ministry after Paul left. That yes, Mark is a faithful, good brother. You've got to use him. You've got to have him in the ministry. Be part of it. And he, so you see the grace of God, and that's how we are. Sometimes the enemy comes in, causes division, causes some struggle between two brothers, but have the grace of God well up into your life and look for forgiveness, look for reconciliation so that there can be healing take place so that God can continue to use that brother in your life or use you in that brother's life, in the ministry. Choose grace. Choose forgiveness to reconcile relationships that have gone bad. Paul chose that. But when we also see another guy named Jesus, who was called Justice. In that day, Jesus was a very common name, or the original language is Joshua. So Joshua is a very common name in that day. So we refer to him as Jesus Justice, or Justice. And this man, we don't know a lot about this man except his name. And the fact that he was part of all these guys, these other four guys who brought comfort to Paul in his Roman custody there before his trial before Caesar to see if he was going to be killed or not. But, but this is important to know. Even though we don't know much about uh, Jesus' justice, is the fact that this man represents those faithful believers who serve God but whose works are not announced or not seen by others. They just faithfully serve behind the scenes. They don't need to be known what they've done or need to be known. They're not up there standing up front and doing the teaching. They're behind the scenes taking care of things to make sure that that person who is teaching is actually able to teach. That is the kind of guy you want around you in your life. You really do. A sister who is going to, doesn't need to have any acknowledgement or you know, notary of, they just quietly come along your side and, and help you. Doing what God, they can recognize God is doing in your life. And that's what God called them to do in their life. But do you know one person who does know what Jesus' justice is doing? The one person that knows. And that's God himself. 
God, the Lord himself, has seen the faithfulness of this man, justice, in his life and his ministry and what he has done to help further the kingdom of God. In verse 12, we see Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently and for, all, for you in prayer, in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. So Paul brings out another guy named Epaphras. This is the pastor. This is the guy who brought the letter originally from Colossae to the Roman prison to, to Paul and to tell him this is what's going on with the believers in Colossae. And there's some having some challenges. These, these legalists, these, these Judaizers, these, these Gnostics who are with human philosophy, these false teachers are creeping into the church and trying to sway people away from a, a, the, the belief in Jesus Christ alone. They're trying to tell them that you have to be circumcised just like a Jew. You have to keep the diet, Jewish dietary uh, law like a Jew to be able to, to have a closeness with God. And you have to dress a certain way. You have to act a certain way. And all these things. And that's nothing new into the sun. It still happens today in some churches, unfortunately. They're more legalistic and more, they let the things of man, to, the philosophies of man to creep in, the psychobabble stuff, and they creep in versus just keeping the, the simplicity and the, and the truth of God, the biblical truth of the word. It was happening then, it still happens today, unfortunately, to churches. But you and I, we know the word of God, so if anyone tries to come in here and tries to teach you things, you immediately say, I'm no good here. That doesn't line up with the word of God. Let me show you, show you what the truth is. And so you stand strong because you know the word of God. And so as we continue here, we see Epaphras, who is also a bondservant. Bondservant means a willing slave for Christ. I am do, my life is just whatever Christ wants me to do. My Lord, I do it. I, and I, I, I don't you have to be forced to do it. I want to do it. That's, that's Epaphras. Who is, and he says to the believers in Colossae in this letter, he says, your pastor, your Epaphras, this guy here, he's, for, he's not able to come to the church now. He's not able to go back to Colossae. He has to stay here with me for some reason. But he's always laboring fervently in his prayers for you. He's always just constantly asking for the will of God to happen in your life there in Colossae, in that church. He's bearing, I bear witness that he is, has a great zeal for you. He has such a passion for you there, thousand miles away. He is just fervent praying, passion for you. Do we have that same zeal in our, our Christian life? Do we have the same zeal for those so far away? Not only for the church there in Laodicea and Herapolis, but we see this fervent prayer that Epaphras is known by and certainly Paul witnessed in his life, his prayer life. Then we see Luke, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Here we see Luke. He was the physician. He also wrote the, the gospel of Luke. And Luke, too, was there by Paul's side the entire time. Prison after prison, the shipwreck, swimming to the island, watching him get bit by a serpent and he was supposed to die. He, as a physician, saw it all. Now, I see that and I read that and I go, wow, a physician, that's really cool. Why did God point out his profession? 
And I think that encourages you and I because not only does he want to use you in a life as a child of God, but he also wants to take your profession that he's given you, whatever job he's given you, and use that for his glory, for his purpose. So God used this physician to come alongside Paul and minister to him not only spiritually but also physically. Remember, he got the eye disease. He's been beaten and whipped and nearly died and all kinds of things happened to this man. And God used this physician to come along inside to bring comfort and to encourage him in his walk and to continue to do the ministry that God's called him to do. And then we got this guy named Demas. And we know his name. <laughs> That's all we know, really. But what we do know of this man is not good. And this man we know says right here that, that in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, he was, uh, he was grouped among these fellow laborers with Paul. He was there in the ministry, working with him, laboring with him, doing what he's doing. But then notice in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says that Demas had forsaken him, having loved this present world, that he had gone on to Thessalonica. And that's sad. When you have a beloved brother, a, a co-worker in the ministry, serving alongside you, and then they say to themselves, I don't, I, I don't, want, to, I don't want this. I want to go back to the world. I want to live like the rest of the world. I don't want to live for God. Now, we don't know. Demas doesn't, doesn't say he's, you know, wasn't saved or he's gone to hell. or he, he just, as a believer, serving at one point, says, I don't want to do any serving in this, in this capacity anymore. And Paul shows that he didn't leave well, that he went back to the world to live like the world. And the Bible says, God warns us as a believer, if you're living for him now and serving him and doing what he's called you to do and then you choose to be deceived and go back to the world, go back to the old life, it's called carnality. And it's the most miserable life you will ever have as a Christian. Because once you're saved, you cannot go back. The Bible refers to it as like a dog going back to his vomit. That's not pretty. You know what I'm saying? It's not pretty. And unfortunately, over the years and years of ministry, I have watched firsthand dear brothers working side by side in the ministry with me, and they choose to walk away and get deceived and get wrapped up into all kinds of religious things and other things. But eventually they spiral out of control, and they're like, they're carnal, they go back to the old life. They don't even serve God at all. And it's, it's grieving to watch their lives from a distance. Verse 15, then we greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Niphus, or Niphus and, the, and the church that is uh, in his house. So Paul addresses the brethren back there because remember these, these letters, this scroll, this, this book was taken from church to church and then read to the congregation so they could hear and see what Paul was trying to communicate to them. And he's also saying, when you go back, speak to these brothers and, and the people there in Laodicea and this, this guy, Niphus, who has a church. He's a, he's, a, he's a head of a home fellowship. Go back and talk to that guy and, and encourage him. We don't know anything about this guy, but that doesn't matter. He was a, He's involved. He has a home church and, and his doors are open. He's serving because back in those days, they didn't have a big building. Everybody 
somebody went to smaller homes and there was a pastor or elder in charge of each of these home churches and to ministering to these people. And he was one of them. And verse 16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle of Laodicea. So he's, he's encouraging them how and what they need to do with these letters, to read these letters, these epistles, to those churches. And this letter he's referring to is read the epistle from Laodicea. We don't have in the Bible a letter from Laodicea because remember, there's a lot of writing and a lot of things that were done that are not recorded in the Bible because they were not what God and the Holy Spirit inspired to be in the Word of God. So this letter could be one of two thoughts by many. One is that it's just a letter that's you know, one of the letters they just wrote and no big deal. It wasn't God inspired to write it, so it didn't make the Bible, or it actually was the, the book or the letter of the, to the Ephesians that they were referring to. Either way, it doesn't matter. Um, they wanted to take that letter and making sure it was communicated to those in those two areas. And then finally, uh, verse 17 and 18, we say 17, and, and say to uh, Archippus that take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So he says, hey, guy, Archippus, we don't know. He's telling these guys to go talk to him directly. He doesn't really, Paul doesn't get to go to, to him directly to say this to him personally, obviously. But he says, go there and tell him to take heed to the ministry that God has called him to. Take heed. Hold on to it. Don't leave the ministry. Don't walk away from it. This is what God has called you to do. This is your mission. Do not do anything but stay and take heed to it. Take it that this is of God and which you have received in the Lord because the Lord gave it to you. You didn't get it. You didn't just figure this out and dream it up yourself. And, and as a side note, watching the ministries, some people you can get a little, little boosted up in your, in your Christian walk and you think you've arrived and you think, I'm just going to go out and start your own work. And they miserably fail because God didn't call them to go do that work. They just felt to do it on their own. That's why you always test make sure it's of God before you go out. And he always said, and I believe, the scripture's there, two by two. That's why we wouldn't come out and start this new ministry until God showed me who it was. And God clearly showed me it was going to be Pastor Rich. And he was in California, and I wasn't in California at the time. And God revealed it to him, confirmed it. And we went two by two in 2011. We showed up <laughs> with our wives and, and Heather, and that was it. And said, God, if this is you, and we know it was your view, it's been confirmed, we're going to redeem the time, we're going to be faithful, and we're going to sit here and watch what God's going to do. And we've had the blessing of ministering to hundreds that have come through here through the years. What a blessing. What a blessing for us. But this guy, as God said to Pastor Rich and I many times, take heed to the ministry, stay faithful, stay focused. I've given you this, you must fulfill it. He, Paul says the same thing to Archippus here. He says, stay faithful, stay there, be received, received it from God, be faithful, don't leave. This is what we, I need you to do for me. And then he closes it out at the very end with a salutation of closure here, verse 18. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So remember, typically what happened is Paul would, as the Holy Spirit gave him words, he would say it out loud, and he had a scribe there next to him writing this all down. And at the end of the letters, he would take that, the, the, that thin, thin, thin paper. It's, it's very thick, actually, compared to ours, right? Um, 
and uh, he would take it, and he had bad eyes, but he'd have to write very large letters, as we see in other letters. He had big letters to be able to write, and he would close out that letter on that scroll. So when whoever read it obviously knew this was from Paul that was writing this letter to those in the place it was supposed to be received. And he says, remember my chains. Why did he say that? Because he's in chains right now, and these believers that were receiving this letter, all the way from the Ephesians letter to the Colossae letter that we're reading now, to all of pray for me, because I'm doing God's will. I'm in God's will. Just keep praying for me, even though I'm in a prison. Pray what God is going to do with my life. If I'm going to die, because he could immediately die. He was waiting for Caesar's determination if he was going to die or not. They didn't have prisons. They have holding cells of prison, but it was short term. They didn't have these long, beautiful prisons that we have today where you can get your master's degree and three good meals and, and have a t t bigger TV than, uh, than you have in your room and, and all these other things. No, they were shackled and <laughs> stripped and, and, and not good conditions, but it was short term. Why? Because Caesar made a determination. One of two things. You're going to head kind of come off or you'll be set free. It was the only two choices. So he's saying, remember in my chains, and grace be with you, amen. May God's grace continue on you. We know we don't deserve God's love and grace and mercies and, and provision. We know that because we are wicked men and women. We're, we're sinful people. But as believers, we've been saved by God's grace, and we've been in, adopted into his family, and we are set free from our sins. We've been forgiven of our sins. And when God looks into our lives as a believer, he does not see our sin. He sees no sin. Your slate has been wiped as white as snow, clean. God the Father comes down and looks and says, I just see my son Jesus in your life and no sin. If you have not experienced that freedom of forgiveness of sin, today is your day of salvation Acknowledge you're a sinner. You acknowledge you need to be saved. You need to change. And ask God to come in your life and change you. And he will. Because he'll never force himself into your life. He knocks at the door of your heart. And anyone who opens up the door to their heart, he will come in and you'll be sealed for eternity and be a child of God. There is no better place to be in your security I watch in, in my line of business as, uh, that I do currently is I see the statistics of what's happening in our youth, happening with, with adults, with suicide, and going to, it is rampant. And do you know why we have suicide? Because people have no hope. And you and I have the gospel of Jesus Christ to give them hope so that they know that they were created by a creator and has a purpose and a plan for their lives. And if they would just turn their lives over to him, he will reveal that to them. What better place to be knowing that you have an eternal hope. Amen?